This message is called, Faithful is He that Calleth You. I'm going to read just two verses, verses 23 and 24. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is He that calleth you, who also will do it. So there's two things that I want you to leave this session having heard from this message. Uh, The first one is this, God is faithful. God is faithful. The second one is, I want us to think specifically about one part, one major part of God's faithfulness, God's faithfulness to us in the great work of sanctifying us. God is faithful. If you're human, then you are familiar with unfaithfulness or the lack of faithfulness. Faithfulness is a divine attribute. It's something that comes from God. And we are the deliverers, oftentimes, or the recipients of acts that are not faithful. Let me share a story, and then I'll, I'll, I'll share part of the story and then return to it later just for reference. I coached basketball a few months ago. One of our players um, just texted the, the, the coach group and said, I won't be at practice uh, today, and then probably won't be at practice all week. That raised our eyebrows because he's a, he's a gym rat. He wants to, he's in the gym all the time. He wants extra work in the gym. Didn't really explain what was going on. So one of the coaches reached out to him. And it didn't take long for it to all come spilling out. We knew he had a tough home. He rotated back and forth between his mother in one place and his grandmother in another place and his dad. And he was staying with his dad who seems to be the most stable of, of all the, 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 the parenting group. And um, he was in bed and his dad had come home from, uh, from being out, uh, drunk again. So on this night, his, his dad comes up to his room and shakes him out of bed and says, Get up, we're going to wrestle. And he said, Dad, I, I don't, I don't want to wrestle, I'm trying to go to sleep. He said, We're going to wrestle. He said, Dad, I, I really don't want to wrestle tonight. His dad pushes him around a little bit more and says, We're going to wrestle. He said, Dad, please, I don't want to wrestle. You, you, you've been drinking too much, please just go to bed. When he said that, it, it set his dad into a rage. He jerked him out of bed. He started pummeling with his fists. Both eyes were, were blackened and eventually got so angry that he threw him literally out of the house, off the porch, busted his shoulder. The neighbors heard it, called the police. The police came. This young man didn't, didn't want to get his dad in trouble, so he refused to, to say what had happened and just blamed it all on being some horseplay. And then left for the night. We're, we, we have unfaithfulness everywhere, don't we? Not all as severe as that. But we're very familiar with unfaithfulness, the lack of faithfulness. But God is faithful. God is faithful in all of His ways. But this text talks about one of the chief aspects of God's faithfulness. And that is God's faithfulness in this great change of sanctification. 
So really this text is very simple. There's a prayer for change, and then there is the resounding confidence that this change will come because God is faithful. So the prayer for change, verse 23, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. A prayer for change. Now whether you are a believer tonight or an unbeliever, we all have this in common. We all crave change. Some of the changes that we crave change over time. I no longer care as much about having a full head of hair or how fast I talk or how much I stutter. It used to bother me a lot. I used to really want those things to change desperately. Those aren't as important to me anymore, but there are other things that I really want to see, see change. Change is a desire that we have because there's a recognition that we all have. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, we all recognize that there is something that is missing. Something that is not complete. Something that is not whole. And again, it can be trivial. Maybe right now you just want to change the scenery. Let's get done with this service and, be, and get back to the, to, to the volleyball court. Or maybe it's a little bit more intense for you. Maybe you've spent this last few hours wishing you were funnier, more athletic, taller, had better hair, and a thousand other things. Or maybe it's even more serious than that. Our whole conversation and our whole national conversation is about change and about how young someone should be allowed to radically change themselves. But the reality is, is that no matter how much, if we had the management to be able to even change our bodies, the change would not be as significant as we would like, would it? Because we would still have us. I would still be me. I would still be me dealing with the same doubts and insecurities and things that plague the mind and plague the soul. My son, Luke, texted me on the way up here Monday morning. He said, Dad, my neighbor, 20-year-old Young man, my neighbor, four o'clock in the morning, shot himself in the head. His mother was a drug addict. He hadn't seen her in five years. And I don't know all that was going on on his mind, but he was so desperate for change that he took, he took his own life. Life was no longer worth living. Well, I've got good news for you. This prayer of Paul is not just his prayer. Paul's prayer for change is, is, is grounded, is founded in God's desire for change as well. God craves your change even more than you do. No matter how big of a change you'd like to see made about your circumstances, about your own self, your own identity, uh, just know this, 
your desire for change is much smaller than God's desire for change, and your vision of change is much smaller than God's vision of change for you. And that's really good news. If you are in Christ tonight, if you're one of His, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, I want you to know that you are, yes, you are far, far more significant than you can ever imagine. God's whole plan for history, in a very real way, is centered in your change, your sanctification. Yes, you as an individual. I'm looking at faces of people. Not just a mass, but individual people. God's whole plan for history. To unveil the glory of His Son. And the majesty of His work is centered in His work in changing you. This, How do we get from this text? Well, it starts off with, And the very God of peace. The same language, the God of peace, is used by the writer of Hebrews in the last chapter when he would say this, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do His will, working in you, that which is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever. Did you hear that? Verse 21, the God of peace is working to make you perfect in every good work to do His will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom... I don't know what I'm doing here. The one that you're wearing? Right here? See, I need to change right now. I'm good now? This language in Hebrews 13, verse 20 and 21, the God of peace, the God who is bent towards peace, the God who has grand designs and a grand plan for peace that extends all the way back to eternity past where what is described here as the blood of the everlasting covenant. The everlasting covenant is hatched in eternity past. Really what's happening here is that God in this great plan for your salvation and for your change is cashing all His chips in. He's going to give His very best. The blood of the everlasting covenant is the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. God is planning to give His very best, His own Son, in order that you might realize this great transformation, this great change that He has designed for you. To be sanctified. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. That's big language, isn't it? Not just a a makeover that lasts for a day or some new nails that will last for a few weeks. But God says, I want to sanctify you wholly, completely. 
Not just a part of you, but I want your whole body and soul and spirit. Not many times in the Scriptures does it break us down that, that, into that many sections, right? He's just saying, I want all of you to be fully transformed, to be sanctified for that which is common. You see, we, we understand we're common, right? That's why we want to change. We recognize that there's something missing. Something that's not whole, something that's not complete. And God says, I want to make you that are common, holy, uncommon. That's you. Isn't that amazing? And I want you to understand, it's not I want to call you uncommon. I have a favorite t-shirt at home. I've had it for about 22 years. Maybe 23, I don't know. It's a long time. It's blue. It's faded. It used to have a tiger, a big tiger there on the front. You can still see it's outlined a little bit. Asher calls it my holy shirt because it is full of holes. But it is so soft. And I love to wear that shirt to sleep in because it just, it just sort of is there. It doesn't bother me at all. And so it's, it's special to me. It's not special to you, but it's special to me. But in reality, it's just an old, faded blue shirt with full of holes. I call it special. I think of it as special. But it's really not that special. That's not what we're talking about here, friends. God wants something far bigger and far better than that for you. Not just to call you holy, but to make you holy. Not because you just, he just, somebody just says you're holy, but because it actually is true. In fact, he says, so holy, so set apart, so hallowed in body and soul and spirit that God, if he were trying to, could not find one thing to criticize about you. Because you look just like his son, Jesus. See, that's been God's design the whole time. God is so enamored. The Father is so enamored, so satisfied with the glory and the beauty and the holiness and the perfection of His Son that He says, I want there to be a bunch of sons and daughters that look just like Him to live with Him and to enjoy His inheritance so that He is glorified in the making of many sons and daughters that look just like Him. Isn't that something? Does that seem far, far grander and bigger and impossible? This is God, this is Paul's prayer. And in fact, the Thessalonians could reply, look, we, we've already changed a lot. The, 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 the whole epistle is filled with praise of real, meaningful significant, deep changes that already had been made in their lives. But it's as if Paul is coming in this verse and saying, listen, all of that, wonderful, but I want more. So think about some of the things that have happened already. The gospel has already come to them in power. It's had a dramatic, moving influence in their life. Not just in word, but in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much conviction. And Paul says, and I want more. I'm praying for more. They've already become followers of and disciples 
of the preachers of the gospel. And Paul says, and I'm praying for more. They've already received the word with joy and much affliction. And Paul says, I am praying for more. They're already experiencing and demonstrating faith, love, the work of faith and labor of love and this enduring hope, patience of hope. And he says, I want more. They've already turned from idols to serve the living and true God. And Paul is saying, I'm praying for more. Their lifestyle is already bent towards waiting and looking and longing for the return of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I want more. He says, I am not satisfied until you're fully and completely soul and body and spirit changed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't be scared off by that more. <laughs> this is not a demand. You've got to be better. You've got to, you, you've got to, you've got to go shine your shoes a little bit more. This is, this is evidence of God's great and glorious plan and love and care for you. The more should excite you. God's not finished yet. And what God is going to do in your life and in your heart at the day of Jesus Christ is going to be an incredible masterpiece of grace and mercy and goodness to you. Well, That sounds a bit ridiculous, doesn't it? Can I really look like Jesus? I can really be this more? This change from my whole spirit and soul and body are united in love for Christ? Well, this is, just not, this is not just a vain prayer. But Paul is absolutely convinced this is going to happen. The very God of peace sanctify you, he's praying. I'm praying your spirit and soul and body be preserved. But he's confident it will happen because his confidence is, is fully bound up in the faithfulness of God. Again, what are the message tonight? God is faithful. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. Faithful. Faithful is he that calleth you. God is faithful faithful. God's faithfulness is, is one of His attributes. It just means that, that He's steadfast, that He's, he's, he's fixed. He, he, he remains true to His work. He remains true to His Word. We sing songs like, great is thy faithfulness. God, you remain true to what you've said you will do. You remain true to who you are. You remain true as a, and that's a wonderful truth to think about, isn't it? God's faithful. doesn't change. Change and decay all around we see. Some of the changes we crave, some changes really hurt, don't they? And God's not like that. But just thinking of God's steadfastness and fixedness by itself is not wholly comforting. Faithfulness means more than that. Here, here's the illustration. Um, I won't do it right now, but if I challenge you to a stare-out contest... You know, we just stare at each other's eyes until somebody breaks. And I was really good at it. I'm not really good at it. If I was really good at it, and I just stared and stared and stared and stared and stared and stared and stared, it would get pretty creepy pretty quickly, wouldn't it? I want you to understand that God's faithfulness is not that he's just, he's just staring. He's this unmovable force. He's just staring. There's something much more personal here. 
God is faithful because he loves. God's faithfulness arises out of, yes, his infinite nature and his eternality, but God's faithfulness also arises out of his love, his care, his personal commitment and loyalty to that, to those whom he has given himself to. God is faithful. God is faithful. He's faithful to his word, what he's promised, and God is faithful in what he does. And the passage tonight zeroes in on this part of God's faithfulness is that God is faithful. He is faithful in bringing about our transformation. He's faithful in bringing about our sanctification. He's faithful in bringing about our great change. So we need to understand and acknowledge that God is faithful. That's just who He is. That He's God. But, but here's, the, here's really the message tonight. This is so important. The whole idea of God being faithful will roll off your mind and be meaningless to you unless you understand how God is faithful. You see, faithfulness is, is an invisible attribute, right? You can't just put your hand on faithfulness. But faithfulness does look like something. You, you can see faithfulness when it occurs. And so one of the great, one of the, one of the most important pursuits that you and I can have as Christians is to learn to look for and recognize and then respond in the right way to God's faithfulness. Really important. You need to be able to identify God's faithfulness. This is what it looks like. That you might recognize it when you see it, when it happens. And that you might respond to it in faith and trust and hope. Now here's the thing. Here's why that's so important. You better get this. God's faithfulness rarely looks to us like faithfulness. Did you hear that? So important to realize this. God's faithfulness rarely looks like faithfulness. We have a very different vision, naturally, of what faithfulness would look like. Well, God, if you love me and you're committed to me, then what do we expect people that love us to do? We expect people that love us to treat us well. We expect them to be interested in our, in our desires and respond to our desires, right? If you love me, you'll be kind to me. So our vision, our view, our understanding of faithfulness looks far different than, what, than how God demonstrates His faithfulness. So let me just real quickly share with you, and I think they're both found in this, in, this, uh, in, this, in this book, share with you two very real challenges to trusting God's faithfulness that we'll all experience. One internal and one external. So we're talking about God changing us, about Him making us more like Christ, about this work of holiness that He's doing in our hearts in our lives, preserving us blameless to the appearing of Jesus Christ. Well, the first challenge that arises in our, in our lives is internal. And what is that? It's our internal uncleanness. Right? Well, well God, if, if you're really changing me, if I've really turned from idols to serve the living and true God, then why in the world am I still struggling 
with my love for the same idols. We heard that in the questions today. What do I do? What do I do with these, these sinful desires that still come? I don't know what to do with them. Help me understand what to do with them. Well, if God is faithful in changing us, then why are those desires still there? And so just the, just the, the reality, this is who Paul's addressing. Paul's addressing people who have turned from idols to serve the living and true God, to wait for His Son from heaven. And then in chapter 4, he's reminding them to abstain from fornication. So the same desires that were there before they were changed are still there now. Yet they've turned to God. What's happening here? Be careful. Be careful in your struggles with your sinfulness to not interpret the struggles as being evidence of the lack of a work of grace in your heart. It's not the presence of the struggle, but, what your, but your response to the struggle that matters. Secondly, the external. We don't have time to read this whole letter. It's a wonderful, wonderful epistle. I would encourage you to read it. But here's what happened. As soon as these people who Paul's speaking to followed Jesus Christ, they experienced nothing but horrific trouble in their lives. Their own countrymen, it's their own neighbors, their own people turned against them. There was this rabid group of people who hated Christ, who, who followed Paul from Thessalonica 40 miles or so to Berea to continue to harass him. Can you imagine people who hated you so much that they would follow you for miles and miles and miles just to harass you? This letter is filled with Paul, Paul's concern about whether the Thessalonians are still walking faithfully because he knows how intense the pressure is upon them in, the, in terms of all the affliction that they're suffering. Does suffering feel like faithfulness? Does conflict feel like faithfulness? Does a dad punching you and throwing you out of his house feel like faithfulness? The struggles in relationships feel like faithfulness. I'm trying to follow Christ, yet it's nothing but struggle. It seems like that these people turned to Christ, then Christ turned and ran. Have you ever asked the question, God, where are you? I'm trying to be faithful to you. Where are you? Lord, I'm waiting for your son from heaven. Where is he? Faithfulness rarely feels like faithfulness. And so it's essential that we understand what God's faithfulness looks like in his work of sanctification in our lives. Well, this text answers that question. 
What does it look like? It looks like God's call and it looks like God's doings. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. God is faithful in his calling. He's faithful in his calling. That seems kind of, doesn't seem very warm, does it, tonight? Okay, what does that mean? Well, let's look at this in terms of, and by the way, sometimes we use, you know, effectual calling and gospel call, and, and it just seems sort of abstract and not very, what is calling? Calling is saying, hey, I'm, I'm talking to you. That's calling. So God is faithful by calling out to you in several different ways that are listed, in, that, that, are, that are given to us in this passage. The first one I want to mention is God is faithful by calling you by His Spirit through the Word of God. You right now are experiencing God's faithfulness. What's happening right now in this whole weekend is incredibly important because God's speaking to you. He's speaking to you through His Word right now. He's calling you to this change. He's calling you from this common to the uncommon. And and I, I just love how that uh, Brother Andrew referenced Acts 17 uh, yesterday morning. And I love how we can see this in, in action in, in real people's lives. We don't, we don't know the names of the believers in, in, Thess- in Thessalonica. But we do know something about some of them. In the, in the account of Paul coming to this city and preaching the gospel to these people, we learn about some of the people who believed. And I want to zero in on just one, there are three categories. There were some, some, some Jewish people that believed, and there were some devout Grecian people that believed. And then it says, and there were some, some chief women who believed. And when I read that, that just jumped off the page at me. You see, Thessalonica was a Grecian city, and you don't have to know a lot about Greece, but you, you might remember that when Paul is talking about the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says this, he says, he says, to the Greeks, to the Greeks, the gospel is, is foolishness. It's just silly. Because the, the, the Greeks, I mean, you've heard some of these names. Um, Aristotle, uh, Plato, Socrates. Some of you know a lot more about those guys than I do. But, but those, were, those were Grecian guys. Guys with great minds. And, and the Grecians took, took great, great solace, great confidence in, in, in their ability to, to think about life and, and all the abstracts of life and the realities of life and, and use their minds, use their, their, their logical ability to, to, to come up with a system for, for understanding life and, 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 and all the things of life. They were intellectuals with wonderful broad minds. Thessalonica was a pretty wealthy metropolis as well. And so here, here, are these, here are these women, these leading women, chief women. Undoubtedly, they, they were from very well-connected homes. And, and I don't know how they got here on these days, but, but maybe, maybe they said, you know, let's, let's go check out the, the Jewish synagogue and see what's being said there. Just a thirst to learn and a thirst to, 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 to have more knowledge and a better, you know, better conversation pieces and just have a better understanding of the world and how people think. 
And they show up on this day, on these days when Paul is, is speaking. And, and here's what Paul does. Paul begins to, to expound and to argue on several points. He, he says there is, there's a Messiah. So there's, there's, there's one God. There's one true and living God. And, and there is His Son, the, the Messiah, this promised anointed one, this, this king who has been promised through the centuries to come to rule over his people. He says the, 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 the Messiah, the Christ, and then he says the Christ must needs have suffered. So he's saying it was necessary that this, this anointed one, this, this king who is coming to earth to rule over his people, that he, he, would, he would suffer and undoubtedly he would explain why he must suffer. He must suffer because he had committed himself to, to this people, his, his sheep, um, but, but they had gone astray. As Isaiah 52 and 53 say, that there was nothing about him that was attractive to them, and they weren't, they weren't interested in, in following him. They'd offended God and offended the Messiah. But the Messiah was, was committed to His people. And so the Messiah suffers in their stead. He suffers for their sins. And then He says, and, and He was risen again from the dead. That's a strange thing to say, isn't it? He was risen from the dead that He had, he had crushed death to death. He had broken the power of the grave. So He had risen again as as King over this kingdom where people would not die. And they would, or they would die, but they would, they, would, they would rise again after their death and they would live with Him in this glorious kingdom. And even now, He's, he's reigning and ruling over all. He, pre, he, he preaches that Christ is the King. And then He says this, as if this weren't already just ridiculous enough, he says, and that this Jesus whom I preach to you is Christ. Now imagine just how ridiculous this must have sounded. This carpenter's son, born in very questionable circumstances from some out-of-the-way place, is the anointed of God who broke the power of sin and the grave and He's the King over the whole universe? I mean, even saying it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Some unknown person with no education from some nowheresville way out in the boonies, is the Messiah who rules over all. And yet, I don't know the details, but I know this happened, yet as ridiculous as that sounded, something began to stir in the hearts of these women. It did. Maybe, maybe it began to stir when he began to talk about sin and guilt. But something began to stir in their heart. Here's what was happening. God, God was 
calling them. He was calling them through the mouth of his servant Paul who was talking about Jesus. And he was telling them that they were guilty sinners who were without hope, but that Jesus the Christ suffered because he is the Savior. He's the only one who can bear up the heavy load of God's wrath and justly uh, receive the, uh, the punishment for sin that is due and justly satisfy the wrath of God and that He bore our sins on His own body on that tree so that sin and the debt for sin is forever paid fully. And something began to stir in their hearts. And these people who who were well-connected, well-educated, set-for-life people believed and began to consort or follow Paul and these gospel preachers. Isn't that amazing? Has that happened with you? Maybe even, even through this last few days, maybe this uncomfortable feeling, and, and, and you've, you've, you've managed to, to distract yourself at times just by maybe turning and writing some notes to your friend or, or getting up and going to get a drink of water or just getting out there and playing volleyball and moving to the next thing. But, but something has been stirring in your heart. You go, you know what? I, I, I need a Savior. I am a guilty sinner. And I don't really know anything that I can do to, to satisfy God. I've tried to just ignore it. I want you to understand that, 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 that feeling you're having, the thoughts you're having, this, this is what God's faithfulness looks like. God's faithfulness is seen in His, his calling. Hey, hey, listen to me. I've got something to tell you that's very important for you to hear. This is what God is doing. This is His faithfulness to you in bringing about this great change. The call is to turn. To turn away from idols. And what that just means is turn away from all the things that you're looking to satisfy and to quench your own thirst and desire for change. It won't do it wholly. In fact, it won't do it well at all. To turn from idols to serve the living and true God. That's, that's one way that God calls. This is what he's talking about in 1 Thessalonians 2.13 when he says, he says, I'm thanking God without ceasing. This is God's call, God's work. I couldn't do this. God did this. Because when, when you receive the word of God, you thought you were just coming to the, to the synagogue to hear another interesting talk about religion. But as you sat there, you realized this is not just the word of men. God's speaking to me right now. This is God speaking to me, to my heart, to my soul. You receive it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually, it's actually actively doing something, working in you that believe. Praise the Lord for His faithfulness and calling through His word. But there's another way that God is calling. I'm so thankful for God's faithfulness in this way. 
I'm just going to say it this way. God's faithfulness is seen um, in this great change. It's seen in the calling that we receive through the church of God. So let me just set it up for you this way. Um, I can't read this whole, this whole letter, but, but here's what's in this letter. We don't know how long Paul knew these people. It could have been as short as three weeks, or it could have been an extended time longer than that. But whatever the case, it wasn't super long. And yet, the, 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 the atmosphere that you get from reading this letter is that Paul was, was fully invested in their welfare. In fact, some of the language is, is almost strange. Paul says, I, I, came, I came to you as, as, as a nurse would come to a child. This is how tender I feel toward you. I, I, I came to you tenderly because I, I, I care for you just like a, a nurse would care for her child. Later he would say, I, I came to you as a father would come to his children. Let me just read to you a small part of this in chapter 3. Just notice the, Paul's heart for them. This is verse, um, verse 5. I'll start reading verse 5. Chapter 3. For this cause when I could no longer forbear. Paul was saying, I didn't know how y'all were doing. I knew you were suffering affliction. And it was driving me crazy. I was, I was so eaten up with worry and concern. Here's what he does, I, that I sent Timotheus. So Timothy leaves Paul. Paul gives up Timothy to go back to Thessalonica just to see how the people are doing. And he came and he brought us good tidings of your faith and charity and that you have good remembrance of us, always desiring greatly to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distressed by your faith. Listen to this. For now we live... If ye stand fast in the Lord, for what thanks can we render to God again for you? For all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Now God himself and your Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way into you. We want to be with you. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. There's a lot of love here, right? Paul's saying, I cannot live if you don't stand fast in the Lord. Paul's saying, I'm praying to God night and day that I can be with you again, that I can see you and comfort you in your faith. I am praying that the Lord would cause you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you for this purpose. So Paul, why do you want this love to be so experienced in the church? To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Did you read that? That's amazing. God, Paul is saying that one key aspect of God's faithfulness in calling you to holiness, in calling you to sanctification, one of God's chief 
instruments in doing that is the love and the, and, the, and the interaction and the investment of the church of God towards you. Understand something, kids. We know we're not cool anymore, all right? We do. We know that we probably struggle in our ability to communicate to you at the level that you're at. We know that you may have been bored at times during our, our sermons or our question and answer sessions today. So having all that said, here, here's, here's, the, here's the real truth. The real truth is, is that we are willing to look like fools in front of you. Because our hearts, here's the reality, our hearts are so drawn towards your welfare. That's the truth. We will live if you stand fast in the Lord. That's true. That's why your moms are here, drove you here. That's why your parents sent you with whoever to come here. Because we long to see you uncommon, looking like Jesus. And God is faithful. So you see, we're not doing this thing alone, are we? God is faithful in giving the church of God. I want to I I I tell you, friends, God, the church of God is God's faithfulness to you. So can I encourage you to begin to develop relationships outside of your peer group? Can I encourage you to take another look at your pastor's and consider that they're not quite as out of touch as they may seem? And if they are, still, understand their heart. They are God's faithfulness for your great change. Well, we're running out of time, so let's move on from God's faithfulness and the calling. But don't, 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 it's, it's huge, it's huge. You need to, if you're going to say, God, I don't feel your faithfulness. I'm still struggling with sin. Well, guess what? God has provided some people in your church for you to go to with your struggle to help you along. They're God's faithfulness. So God's faithfulness is in the word coming to you through his spirit. God's faithfulness is in the church of God who loves and cares for each other. Even awkwardly at times. You need to be able to recognize God's faithfulness. And then finally, God's faithfulness is in the doing. What does that mean? The doing is just the events of life. Just what's happening in life. What's happening in your life is superintended by a faithful God. Yes, even down to the details. The daily frustrations the daily struggles, they're all superintended by a faithful God who's faithful to you. Listen to what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 1. Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. Okay? So, Timothy, you go comfort them concerning their faith. Well, what is the word of comfort? Here's the word of comfort. That no man 
should be moved by these afflictions. For yourselves know that we are appointed there unto... Again, we don't have time to think about it tonight, but you, you cannot, you cannot um, um, exaggerate too much the afflictions these people were experiencing daily as a result of having, received, having, having, having followed Jesus Christ. Just imagine that practically. Imagine that you were you know, in one of these well-connected Greek homes and you begin to follow Christ and now you're really strange. It's foolishness to the Greeks. You're strange to your husband. You're strange to the, your neighbors. And Paul says, you comfort them with this truth that you were appointed appointed by a faithful God to these afflictions. In chapter 5 it says, praise God, we were appointed to not receive God's wrath. That's wonderful, isn't it? Well, here it says we were appointed to these afflictions. Now listen, it's one thing to understand the theology of this passage, right? Just to say, God, I understand you're sovereign. You're using this for my good. Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good. The sufferings are working together for my good. These hard things are working together for my good. Conflict somehow works for my good. It, that's, that's all wonderful. But it, it's, it's very difficult to get excited about that, isn't it? It's very difficult to, to, to see that and to identify it as, as faithfulness especially right in the middle of the moment. And honestly, I can't look you in the eye in the moment of your affliction and tell you that I know exactly how it's God's faithfulness. I can't do that and I wouldn't do that. But I can say this, God is faithful. But sometimes it helps to see God's faithfulness when we can see it in the doing, we can see it from a bigger perspective, a bigger picture. And I think we can do that with, this, with, this, with these Thessalonians. So again, imagine that you're one of these people who's believed and you're sitting in your house one day and you're just wondering, what, what just happened? My whole life has been turned upside down from the moment that I believed. God, what, what are you doing here? And then you begin to understand something, begin to understand this. Let me just walk you through a few things that lead to Paul preaching in Acts 17 to these people. First of all, hundreds of years before, the Roman Empire had constructed this, this roadway system called the Ignatian Way. It was meant to move commerce for the Roman Empire's wealth between Byzantium and Rome. And it just happened to include this, this place, this city called Thessalonica. So there's this roadway system constructed years and years and years before. Seemingly, com- seemingly completely disconnected from this story right here, but it is. It is. And then you fast forward hundreds of years, and there's this man named Stephen. And Stephen is, is, is preaching to this group that's arrested him. And he's preaching one of the most beautiful sermons about God's faithfulness to His people in the person of Jesus Christ throughout Israel's history. 
And instead of these people receiving Stephen's sermon and the glory that it actually was, instead they, they stone Stephen to death. That's a pretty bad thing, isn't it? That's pretty bad suffering affliction to be stoned to death. As he's being stoned to death, there's a young man named Saul who is holding the coats of those who are stoning Stephen to death. And Stephen dies. Well, as a result of that stoning of Stephen, it, it unleashed this reign of terror in Jerusalem so that all the Christians in Jerusalem were mercilessly persecuted and they began to scatter out throughout the region. And Acts 11 says that some of them scattered to this place called Antioch. But in trusting the goodness and faithfulness of God, they scattered, but not scattered with their mouths shut. They scattered, continuing to preach the gospel. So they preach the gospel in Antioch, and a church is, is founded in Antioch. Meanwhile, this young man Saul, who was approving of the, the, the stoning of Stephen, this fire begins to build up in his belly to persecute more Christians and to just, be, just, just to try to obliterate the name of Jesus from the earth to cancel Jesus, if you will. And so he goes about doing that and he dedicates his life to this cancellation of Jesus' effort and he's hurting people everywhere in the process. And on one day as he's attempting to go do some more of this work for God in his mind, Paul is struck off his horse by this, and blinded by this light and for the first time in his life he sees Jesus. Well, Shortly after that, there's a man named Ananias. And the Lord appears to Ananias and says, Ananias, I want you to take this, this man Saul and bring him into your house. And Ananias says, Lord, this guy is bad news. He has a terrible reputation. And Ananias knows that he's taking a huge risk to take him into his house. There could be a lot of suffering that occurs as a result. But Ananias trusts the faithfulness of God and he takes him to his house and mentors him. Well, eventually, this Saul who becomes Paul makes his way to the church in Antioch that was existed because of the suffering of Stephen and the suffering of many Christians in Jerusalem. And now this church exists because of suffering and this church takes in Paul and this church says, you know what, we need to keep spreading the gospel. And so they, they commission Paul and others to go and preach the gospel. And so Paul leaves to go through the region preaching the gospel and encounters nothing but affliction. Nothing but affliction. Suffering at every stop. And so on one random night, Paul is sleeping, and as he's sleeping, he dreams. And as he dreams, there's this man who's never seen before, somebody from Macedonia, who is calling, saying, come and help us. So Paul wakes from the dream. He says, this is God speaking, and Paul travels to Macedonia to a place called Philippi to preach the gospel. Amazingly, people believe demons are cast out and an uproar results because the people are not happy that these demons are being cast out and Paul and Silas are arrested and they're beaten with a whip and they're bloodied and as they are bloodied, they're cast into prison and at midnight, they're still filled with the praises of Jesus on their lips even though their backs are bloodied and an earthquake comes and they break out of the prison through this earthquake and they end up baptizing the Philippian jailer that night. And then they get cast out of Philippi. And so they're standing on this Ignatian Way. 
And the Bible doesn't tell us why. But for some reason, they decided to head west instead of heading east. And to the west of Philippi was Thessalonica. And in Thessalonica, there was a synagogue. And in this synagogue, on this day, there were some chief Grecian women who heard the call of God through the Word of God and believed and followed Jesus. Do you think God's faithfulness is that detailed? I do. Did any of those moments looking back look faithful? Not at all. But God's faithfulness was so pinpointed on each one of His elect children in Thessalonica that He had set His love upon from eternity past in this everlasting covenant and had committed the life and the death of His Son for their great change that He was working in all of these seemingly disconnected, random, hurtful, painful moments to bring about this change in their life. Friends, God is faithful in the doing. He's faithful in the doing. Now, you and I cannot see that in the same detail, can we? But God is faithful. He's faithful in the doing. That means in just the events of your life, and the open doors and the closed doors, and the disappointments and the hurts, and the conflicts and the resolutions, and the preaching the job opportunities, friends, God's working. It doesn't always feel like faithfulness, but it absolutely is the faithfulness of a God who is committed to changing your whole spirit and soul and body to be preserved blameless at the day of Jesus Christ. I started this evening with a story about this young man who experienced the unfaithfulness of his father. What has resulted from that is that for the first time in his life, he's been able to, because of this opening that came as a result of this very sad thing, to be able to talk one-on-one with a pastor who is teaching him about a heavenly father who gave his son to suffer that sinners might find redemption and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And this young, is, this young man is coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He'd never been exposed to the gospel before. Now, hear me right. I'm not saying that the acts of humans are always faithful. Oftentimes, they're not faithful. But there's a faithful God who is above, and yet committed to you, that Paul can say with absolute confidence, faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. Young people, we love you and we understand, I understand that some of the struggles of your lives are very, very real and you may face great difficulty maybe tomorrow, maybe you already are, maybe you're kind of dreading going back home, but I can promise you this, God is faithful. If you're in Jesus Christ, God is committed to your whole soul and body and spirit being kept, preserved, 
blameless. The day of Jesus Christ. Look to Jesus. May God bless you.